Howdy, folks. I'm back. It's been a while. Rob Noxious, Drunk Noxious, back again. What are we going to talk about tonight? I'm going to be talking about Marxist theory and the failures of it in liberal societies. And, and then interlace that into what we're seeing now with the collapse of the American Republic. I know I've talked about this a lot, but I had a new insight and I kind of wanted to test it out and see where we go with it. So, let's begin. Marxist theory is the idea at its core that, that there's a class in a society. Now, this is not new. Every society has its classes. The Hindu societies, of course, had the caste system. Um, the Romans had, you know, the wealthy and the elite. And then you had the plebs and then you had the slaves. And, and then, of course, you know, Greece, the same sort of thing. Every society's had classes, usually based on wealth. Um, but that's more modern. The more old traditional was you were just a part of a family or a group of families that founded a state. And by being a part of that initial seed, you are entitled to special privileges through the generations. Uh, what we today call nobility. So you could be dirt poor, but you're nobility, so therefore your family gets special status. <clears throat> and so obviously Marx is writing this around the time of what is known as the springtime of the peoples, 1848. Um, <clears throat> he's writing this in the wake of the failed French Revolution uh, about 50 years prior. 60 years prior, and of course the uh, Napoleonic Empire. And then a return to form with the Bourbon Restoration and a return to form with Metternich um, and, and, and that kind of thing, where Europe solidified alliances in the end of the Napoleonic period that would go on to form European really power in the wake, of course, of Napoleon's demise. At Waterloo. <coughs> Sorry, the change in seasons. I've got a little bit of a cough. So what is Marx writing about? And why is Marx writing? And why is his writing important? Well, Karl Marx was born in a middle-class family. Today, what we would call the you know, bourgeoisie. And what he saw was an inequality between the working class and the renewed nobles. But the thing was, at this time, Napoleon, even though he'd been deposed, his reforms had taken effect. Um, and a lot of people don't understand this, but Napoleon's empire was based on merit. Uh, people like uh, Marshal Michel Ney who is considered one of Napoleon's most loyal and most greatest generals, uh, his marshals, um, was a, a tradesman. He was not nobility. His family came from a trade. Same thing with Soult and, and, and various others. <clears throat> We're not going to go deep into Napoleon, but the whole point was Napoleon promoted people who were successful and lucky. Uh, and it didn't matter whether they came from the right family or from a nobody family. Um, very meritorious. And this meritocracy that Napoleon had sort of conglomerated in the fall of the directory, 
and leading into the empire, the first French empire, stuck around in the Bourbon Restoration because the Bourbons knew that they were not very welcome. The only reason they were there is because the Congress of Vienna said they were there, and the French people were very wary of them. And the monarchical restoration in, in France was always unstable. Uh, we, we all, we know, of course, uh, Jean Valjean uh, from Les Miserables. Uh, that tells the story of 1832 and the revolt against French rule, uh, against the Bourbon at that time period, which led eventually to the Orléans uh, restoration, well, not the Orléans restoration, but the Orléans ascension, where the head family of the Bourbon were driven out of France, and a final attempt at a monarchy was 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 begun under the Orléans family, which were the second in line in the Bourbon family. And the Orléans family, uh, they lasted a good 16 years until 1848 when uh, compounding crises in Europe. There was a famine in 1845, 1846, and it just it steamrolled out of control until in 1848 when France had a revolt. And although the acting king at that time tried their best to calm the situation, the thing was, this isn't like something like where it was an overwhelming throwout such as, you know, throwing out Louis XVI wholesale. Political opposition at that point had realized that the French Revolution showed what happens when you go too far, uh, too quickly. And so the response of the opposition to this revolt against the Orleanist rule was muted. They didn't want to go down that road again of let's form a republic and then start chopping heads off. Everyone had Napoleon in mind. Everyone had Robespierre and Danton and Saint-Just in mind. And no one wanted to go down that road again. But it wasn't just France affected. It wreaked havoc in Austria and the German principalities. Because at that point, Germany's still not unified. So Marx is writing in this time period where it's called the springtime of the peoples. 1848 is the year, but it's really multiple years. It starts really 1842, 1844. Um, there's a lot of problems with poverty um, and trade in Europe uh, caused by famines. There had been bad harvests, bad winters, long winters, which reduced the harvest season. There had been bad droughts, where even though you had a good harvest, time period, the harvest was bad because there wasn't enough rain, and that just compounded to create a famine, and of course, when people are starving, revolution. So Marx is kind of writing in this time period, along with a guy by the name of Louis Blanc and uh, Friedrich Engels. Now, Engels and Marx will align themselves together to solve what some people in the period called the social question. The French Revolution had solved the economic question, uh, which is, what do we do to help alleviate suffering um, between the three classes, the three estates, you know, the, 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 the clergy, the nobility, and everyone else? And that decidedly came out in favor of everyone else. The third estate won, and the French Revolution happened, and 
of course, we all know Committee of Public Safety, Directory, and then eventually Napoleon. But there was a bigger question, a social question. As nation states solidify and they become more controlling over regulatory functions, such as controlling economies, does that mean the state has a moral obligation to ensure equality of outcome? A phrase that's more popular today than it was at that time. Equality of outcome is a more modern 20th century phrase that they would probably agree with, but at that time period, Marx uses the phrase means of production. Because Marx is viewing it through the lens of there's a working, there's a working class and then there's a management class. Okay, so this is the old-fashioned nobility versus the poor sort of thing. Except nobility is kind of reduced at this point because Europe went through all the cavalcades of Napoleon. And with the United States showing the world that a democracy or a republic, a limited democracy, could function... You know, this is 1848. The United States was founded in 1776. It won its independence in 1783, and its current constitution was settled in 1787. And the government was formed in 1789. So 1789 to 1848. We'll just do a little bit of math here. 1848 minus 1789. The United States is about 59 years old, roughly, when this all starts to go down. It's going into its late 50s, early 60s. So the whole world is hearing about this going on. So just think about that for a second. Have you thought about it? Good. Now, with the theory of generations is that every 20 years, a new generation is born, roughly. Because by the time one generation reaches their 20s, the new generation is already being born. Because obviously, at the low end, People are having children from 14 to 16, although in the modern day that's not as big as it used to be in modern civilized nations. But this is 1848, where the average age of marriage for a woman was 14 to 16 and a man 18 to 25. So anywhere from 14 to 25 years old would be when a new generation would be born. So that means at this point, about three generations of human beings have been born. They may not be intellectually aware. I mean, they may the third generation may be infants at this point. But at this point, about two full generations have grown up. First generation is now in their 40s. Sorry, the first generation is now entering into their 60s. The second generation is entering into their 40s. The third generation is entering into their 20s. And now a fourth generation is just being born from the time period of the United States founding. 1789, I'm going with that date. So that means there are four generations alive, roughly. Three cognizant. One being, the first one being born the time around the founding of the United States Constitution, not the founding of the United States itself, but, you know, 13 years after the independence when the Constitution was uh, implemented. And 
And people say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, blah, blah, blah. It's only been around 60 years. That's in 60 years. 60 years ago was the civil rights movement. John F. Kennedy was elected president 60 years ago, about two weeks from now. He, of course, wouldn't assume office until the next January. But the point is, 60 years ago, John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States. A lot can happen in 60 years. And the very fact that this United States of America, that everyone's just getting to know, is still around, functioning, and at this point is heavily embroiled in arguments over slavery and the expansion of the Union, and is taking over a whole continent, is weighing on everyone's minds. Because the success of this experiment in human history, bringing back the Republic uh, of Rome, the democracy of Athens, a lot of people are starting to look up at a lot of intellectuals like Marx and Engels are starting to look at the governments around them and wondering, are monarchies are now doomed? I mean, when the United States was founded, everyone in Europe laughed and said, oh, this thing won't last 20 years. They'll have a king eventually. Eventually, they'll realize the, that this republic shit ain't going to work. This democracy shit ain't going to work. And even Thomas Jefferson had his doubts. He worried that the people would change their minds and eventually want to move to something else, which is why he made the move to lower the voting requirements, the land requirements. But by 1848, Thomas Jefferson is long since buried. George Washington died in 1799. Adams and the whole crew of the original Founding Fathers, they're all dead. And America's on its third, beginning its third generation as a country. And many people in Europe are not blind to this. <clears throat> They're not blind at all. They were freaked out about Napoleon because Napoleon had an army and he was marching across Europe at the speed of sound, the speed of gunfire, the speed of cannon fire. But Napoleon was defeated and thus the French Revolution, the idea of republics, democracy, some sort of popular empire, a popular dictator meaning a dictator who'd been elected by popular vote, a democratic dictator. I know it's a little hard for many people to wrap their heads around that these days because people aren't taught that, but you can have a democratic dictator. <coughs> Napoleon was elected emperor by six million votes. They're still remembering this. There's still people around who fought in the Napoleonic Wars or the wars of the seven coalitions against France, depending on whose side you're on. I'm on the France side, so it's the seven coalitions against France. Because for me, I'd rather have a bloody republic than a dull monarchy. <clears throat> a monolithic monarchy.
but they're not blind to this. And people are starting to wonder if maybe the United States is succeeding in ways while they are stagnating. You know, Britain's looking across the pond and thinking, well, mate, we've got, we've got a lot of money sunk into them. We've got a lot of trade deals. And they've got a lot of money. And they've got a lot of people. And they've got a lot of land. I mean, land, money, wealth, power. I mean, eventually, this American experiment, I don't know. I just... It's confusing. I want to invest, but at the same time, I don't want that to come to my country. And the French are thinking, Wow. Hmm. Hmm. I've got nothing to say about that. The Americans are good. But I believe in the king. And now. And the Austrians are thinking, We're far enough away, so it doesn't really matter. And of course, all the German principalities, they're all small little kingdoms. Russia, they're far enough away that they just sold Alaska about 20, 30 years later. Thinking, America, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, it's all in the land. What are they going to do? Plant corn? We put naval bases and Air Force squadrons and bombers. Much later, but anyway, getting up on the tangent. Many in Europe, the intellectuals, are starting to think this is the time. And Marx thinks, rightfully so, and I agree with Marx on this point, that democracy is the vessel through which human beings can achieve a higher self-manifestation of power. That the common person would have greater mobility within society if they were given the opportunity. Marx agrees with opportunity. But that's where Marx and, and United States idea of using the, John, the Adam Smith um, uh, French Revolution capitalism that formed in the late 18th century. Marx thought that instead of people being given opportunity to rise up through the ranks, that the people should be given control over the ranks. So in capitalism, as Adam Smith defines it, there's a group of investors. Today, we would call them venture capitalists, um, you know, VC you know, funding, um, maybe even crowdfunding a little bit, but not so much. We're talking about people with large amounts of wealth and power and status, status who then go and form companies and hire people and give them an opportunity to rise up through these ranks. They create structures for people to rise up through. 
Marx thought that the government should create a level playing field where everyone has a chance to be a venture capitalist. Imagine that, that if you have a good idea and you went to the government with that idea, Marx is positing a theory similar to this. He's not there yet because obviously he, Marx is writing in, 18, in 1840s, 1850s. Capitalism and, and other forms of economic models had not advanced that far. But his thinking is, what if you as a person could be a venture capitalist without having capital? What if the government just took the wealth and then spread it around so that anyone who has an idea would have the chance to do so? <clears throat> you wouldn't have to sit around and wait for an opportunity. You could just ask the government for a loan. And that government would give you the loan. And if you failed, then you had to pay the government back. But if you succeeded, the government would prop you up and give you that power. <coughs> Apologize, give me a second. I apologize. I changing in the seasons out of cough. I wish it was COVID, because then I'd actually, you know. I have a reason to be this way, but nope. Blood work showed bronchitis, and I was on antibiotics, but it's, you know, whatever. Tested negative for COVID. I got tested. Anyway. Problem with Marx is he doesn't solve the economic question. He goes to solve the social question. And the problem with Marx's theory is that he is putting a whole hell of a lot of faith in the common individual. When you take into account people like Napoleon, Julius Caesar, uh, Steve Jobs, um, people of great ambition who go on a war path and are generally regarded as you know unfavorable people they had a reason to do what they were doing they had a singular vision a focus they saw things as 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 they were and then they thought well what could i do to contribute more positively. Julius Caesar, he grew up in the crumbling of the Roman Republic, the time of Sulla and Marius, uh, the civil wars between those two, the two of them, Cinna and Cimber and Saturninus. Um, and then when he goes off to Gaul, there's the Catalinarian conspiracy, the Disruption of the Senate caused by Milo and Clodius. Um, and then various factions within the Senate. Cato, Cicero, Metellus Scipio, Pompey Magnus. Which leads to a civil war between Pompey and Caesar. Which Caesar eventually wins. He becomes dictator for life in perpetuity. And we all know how that story ends. He gets stabbed to death. 
but Caesar had an idea about how to reshape Rome. And many of his ideas were more than likely passed down to his adopted son, Octavian, who becomes Augustus, the first Roman emperor. And Napoleon, he's just some nobody from Corsica, learned French because he's an Italian by birth, and rises through the ranks through several impressive victories before becoming emperor of the French and leading what can only be described as one of the greatest military campaigns of all time, uh, if not the greatest. But what about Hitler? I'm going to say this right now. As a student of history, as a stu student of military history, as a student of political, political history, and as a student of so social systems, Hitler's a jackass. He's a total loser. Hitler's a jackass. He's a total loser. He didn't achieve anything on his own. He achieved it through the works of other people. And his vision ultimately ended up with... Let's just beat everyone over the head with German might and extinguish the Jews and the gays and whatever weird harbored sentiment he had. Napoleon, he built law, law codes, to the point where actually if you go to Louisiana, the state of Louisiana, the United States, the code Napoleon is still mostly followed in Louisiana. The code Napoleon is still mostly followed in Louisiana. In France, they still use the Code Napoleon as the basis of their legal system. It's not obviously the same system, but it is the basis. Napoleon encouraged meritocracy, where people of, of merit and ability rose up, not just because their father was so-and-so, but because that person was good at what they did. And when they failed, they were disposed of and they were replaced. Yes, Napoleon went on a war conquest, which you can either describe as an egomaniacal trip or as defense of France. I say it was the defense of France, but everyone has their own opinion. Whole point is, Hitler, I don't include any of these groups because he's not a great man. He was a lesser man. He was actually trash, who somehow rose to power in a time of great need. And if you want my honest opinion of Hitler, utter dog shit. Don't know how he became the Fuhrer, but, you know, sometimes utter dog shit somehow slips through the cracks. Jeffrey Dahmer makes more sense than Hitler, and that's saying something. If you know anything about Jeffrey Dahmer, the guy is mentally just wrong. And he's better than Hitler. But Marx is saying something smart to get off my little rant. He's saying something along the lines of maybe society has been too focused on money and wealth and means of production. Maybe the people should control the means of production. Problem is, this gets dumbed down 
by Lenin, who needs a way to sell it to the people of Russia in order to seize power. And he does this through a clever trick. He morphs Marx's words to say, the people are the means of power, not the, just the means of production. But here's where Lenin lies. The Soviet Union did not have one single ounce of democracy. And if you want to get into that argument, that's fine. But tell me, did anyone ever vote for the Supreme Soviet? Did anyone ever vote for the Politburo? Were they elected? Really? Were they? Where's the popular vote for Vladimir Lenin? There is none. Vladimir Lenin was not elected by the Russian people, ever. Neither was Stalin, neither was Khrushchev, neither was Kosygin or Brezhnev. Not a single member of the Politburo, ever. There was no democracy in Russia despite the fact that Lenin wrote about how Marx said that democracy is the road to pure communism. Never an ounce of democracy for any of the leaders of the Soviet Union. And yet, from George Washington all the way through to George H.W. Bush, every two years the House was re-elected, Every four years, the president was elected or re-elected. Every six years, on a rotating basis, on the factor of three classes in the Senate, were re-elected. All the way through from 1789 to the present day, the republic endures in the United States. And yet, not one vote was ever cast for Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, Alexei Kosygin, Leonid Brezhnev, not a single vote was ever cast for their election to be the leader of the Soviet Union. The greatest lie never punctured. Let's repeat that for people who are, you know, obviously obfuscating the facts from 1789 till 2020 the present day the house of representatives of the united states of america has been elected every two years from the many states and the many counties and the many cities the senate on a rotating basis of three classes, one-third of the Senate every six years, and every four years the president is elected or re-elected from 1789 to 2020. 
But from about 19, I'd say, 14, 1913, 1912, the dissolution of the Tsarist Russia, Imperial Russia, and the formation of the Union of Supreme Soviet Republic. Not a single vote was ever cast for Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, Leonid Brezhnev, Alexei Kuzigin. None of them got a single vote. Why? Because they wanted democracy. They were a dictatorship. Was Fidel Castro ever elected? What about Hugo Chavez? Do you really believe he was really elected? Big question. A big question indeed. Alinsky thought that maybe they could bring that to the United States. The problem is the United States is a liberal nation. It is not a conservative nation, as many people would like to claim. The United States is in the liberal tradition of open thoughts, open speech. The idea being that you can speak against your government, and your government has very little it can say back, other than neat or cool. Thanks. Thanks for your response. You can say whatever you want about the president, so long as you um, don't go a little bit overboard and get violent or angry. Then again, it depends on what party. But then again, I'm not going into that. The liberality of the United States makes it very hard for a dictatorship to form. Uh, a unelected committee like the Politburo. It makes it very difficult because at the end of the day, eight years from now, you know, let's say Trump doesn't get reelected and Biden gets in there and he goes for eight full years, he gets reelected four years down the road. The country shifts tact. He goes from a liberal to from a conservative to a liberal bent. Within that liberality, of course, there's a conservative liberal and there's a liberal liberal. I mean, you, you get into the tiny little fractions. It's very hard for anything to submit because every eight years, the executive is replaced. And at any moment, the House could shift sides and at any moment, the Senate could shift sides. So it's very hard for any one party or any one ideology to seize complete total power for any length of time. And even then, if they go too far on their agenda, they may lose the will of the people and they may be voted out, which makes any sort of long-term agenda extremely fragile. Which makes socialism and its other counterpart, communistic thought, extremely difficult to implement because as soon as it's implemented, it could easily be rescinded because the country has a democratic notion, a liberal notion that the people control how their government functions. And over time, any sort of great grand scale thing such as healthcare could easily be dismantled. Easily. 
And this sort of thinking, the problem is people thought that everything was going to end up becoming democratic by the 2000s, that Democratic Party was going to run away with things and they'd control the whole country for the end of time. What they didn't expect is that, well, this is a democracy and I have an opinion and I get to vote and you don't get to control who I vote for at all. So then they pack, you know, the, they pack as much as they can. They try to pack the court. They try to pack the Congress. They try to, you know, slam you with emotional crap and get you to vote one way or the other. Make you feel bad about what you're doing. But at the end of the day, you cannot control the vote unless you want to cheat. And good luck in a nation of 330 million people, 160 million voting public. Good luck. Because Trump was elected by about 55,000 votes in five states in the Electoral College. Well, we want to get rid of the Electoral College. It's awful. I don't like the Electoral College. I think that Los Angeles and New York City should control everything in this country. Buddy, as soon as that popular vote becomes the only way a president gets elected, I'm telling you, about probably half the country will revolt and go into civil war. Just start from Dakotas all the way down to Texas and then go to the southeast and you're done. You may think you control the country, but you don't. Because there are people who are going to disagree with you no matter what you do. And, and you can sit up there on your highfalutin horse and you can you know, stand up on your soapbox and fart out your butt all sorts of great perfume smells. But at the end of the day, most people fart out really awful, odious smells. And your poop may be perfumed and covered in gold, and you think your shit don't stink, but it do. But you have to be very careful. You have to understand that people are very dumb. The average IQ of the human race is barely above breathing. It's barely above dolphins. In some cases, a dog is more intelligent than a human. And that's saying something. Dogs are very dumb animals. Very territorial and very dumb. You have to be very careful with people. Because if you rub them the wrong way, they'll turn on you in an instant. I mean, I've had girlfriends who turned on friends because she wore that dress and she looked better in it. And I just don't like her now. I'm not kidding you. I've heard that said. And they held that grudge for years over a dress. And these people vote. And now we've got everyone screaming at each other, yelling at each other, and treating each other like we're all about uh, the other side's a bunch of stupid apes. <laughs> You're so dumb. <laughs> You're so dumb, I can't believe believe that. <laughs> you sound like a SEAL and not a Navy SEAL. I'm talking about the ones that go, and then they go in the water and then they get eaten by a killer whale. <coughs> it's just amazing how people think that they're so smart and then they jump in the ocean, despite the fact that they can totally see the orcas right there. And they jump in and they say, oh, I won't get killed by an... Oh, wait, now I'm fucked. And now I'm dinner.
just remember that. Anytime that you go into an argument thinking that you're the morally superior or the intellectually superior or the, I don't know, you got a bigger dick or something, I really don't know. You got the bigger tits, you got the tighter pussy, you got the amazing ass, or I've got abs. Oh, look at my face, I'm so hot. Look at me, I'm, I'm the man. I can do Krav Maga. Whoopty fucking do. In about 200 years, you're going to be like the rest of us. Bones in the ground.